0: This is Shakira Brown, the Small Biz Whisperer and host of the Moment Master Show at MomentMasters.com. Hey, I have that podcast, but there is nothing better than being on the world of speakers. And I had a fantastic time speaking with Ryan, sharing some of my tips and tricks to get paid as a speaker and to get more bookings. And you are going to love this episode.
1: Welcome to the World of Speakers Podcast, brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host, Ryan Foland. Hello, everybody. We are back, and I'm super pumped because I have Shakira M. Brown, not to be confused with the other Shakira Browns out there, but this one is an award-winning public relations person. She is a communications expert. We are going to talk today about her tips of becoming the speaker who will be renowned for whatever it is you want to talk about. Shakira, hello. How are you today?
0: I am super fantastic. How are you?
1: Good, super fantastic is is odd because normally people are either super or fantastic and you've got the double <laughs> down on there, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> so I love to just start off the show as getting to know people. So how did you fall into or discover or claw your way into public relations? And how did that end up with you being the professional speaker that you are? Where did it all begin? Did you ask for a Yeti mic when you were six years old for Santa Claus? Is that where it all started?
0: <laughs> if only that were true. Uh, no, but you know it is an interesting thing. Um, when I was in grammar school, there was a one of my favorite uh, social studies teachers had a uh, something called news quiz. He would get these questions from I don't know where there was, was like a hundred questions about things that were going on in the world, and then um, there was another one we got from a local TV station, and it required us as students to learn about you know, whatever was going on, uh, reading the newspaper, reading Newsweek or Time. It was all, you know, reading print because <laughs> in the 80s, that's what we had. <laughs> so, right, right. You know, and I'd watch the news <laughs> or whatever. But
1: <laughs> but you weren't listening. You weren't stuck with just the radio at that point. At that point, there was television. So this is good. We're moving along the technology chain. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I would watch, you know, uh, World News Tonight, whatever was on. And then we had these questions regarding what was going on in the world And we were became very competitive about it as students. And I Hmm. found that I was extremely fascinated with current events and I would always be like the, either the top, get the top score or be the second person. I was always competing against one other person, but I was obsessed with news. And I said, okay, I'm going to get into the news business. By eighth grade, I knew that I knew, uh, but I thought I was going to be a talk show host Oprah Winfrey was around, and she was popular, and Sally, uh, Jesse Raphael, and I was like, I'm going to have a talk show. So throughout high school, I really thought that I was going to go to college to learn how to be an on-air person, and fast forward, when I get to Boston University in the journalism program, I learned that the people in front of the camera are usually, or sometimes, I should say, I shouldn't be that mean, or sometimes not so smart, (laughs) so and (laughs) then. And that a lot of the people who are behind the scenes are the brains of the operation. And that's when you get into the, the research and all the good good stuff and the production value. So I really had a focus on production. I did an internship in radio right before as part of a high school senior project. Okay. And then by the time I had finished up college, I had completed about eight internships in print, radio, and television. And I, d- I did the student new uh, radio station. I wrote for the student paper. I worked for the NPR station at Boston University. I worked for several network affiliate stations in Boston. Then I did an internship in New York at ABC Network and worked on Primetime Live with Diane Sawyer. Um, and these are all things in high school. I'm excuse me, high school, college. These are all things in college. Wow, wow. So by the time I was done... I had all these internships. I actually had to get permission to graduate. I had too many credits. I had gotten so many credits <laughs> for interning. And I was like, wait, I have to ask the dean to graduate because I have too many credits? Hmm. And they said, yeah. And of course, that was, it wasn't it was a problem. I mean, it was just a formality, you know, stupid paperwork. Right. But I had, the world was my oyster. I had so many opportunities. I had gone to, I got scholarships to go to industry conferences where I met executives, uh, HR people, producers, and I networked my butt off and was able to, my first summer after college, work at HBO, CBS. I worked at uh, VH1. And this, this is all my first summer. I mean, I was doing all these things, freelancing, got a job at CBS, worked there. Then I became an NBC page and I leveraged that for like four months, which was a really short time because it's like, a, it used to be a nine month program. It might be a little longer now. It's been a while. But MSNBC was starting. Mm. And then I started uh, because I had all this experience. I was a shoe in. So I, I was able to move from being an NBC page, which some people might know from the show 30 Rock, <laughs> which I gave, I gave tours. So, I, I, you know, that was public speaking. I gave tours. Yeah, yeah. You know, of the NBC studios in New York City 30, at 30 Rock. So I've worked at 30 Rockefeller Center. I did assignments. I, I People would always are fascinated by this. It was the summer that Rosie O'Donnell was coming up with her show. It was 1996. Okay. And um, no one knew about the show. So they needed people to come see it. So I, my, as a pages, we were out in Times Square soliciting people to come see the Rosie O'Donnell show. I don't think I have to tell you that after that first episode, we didn't have to do that again. Like, it was impossible to get <laughs> tickets to the Rosie O'Donnell show. But I literally was out soliciting people to come and watch the Rosie
1: O'Donnell show uh, before it aired. Ground floor. Boots on the street. Ground floor.
0: Yep. Yeah, I, I was a page. of this page assignment for the Conan O'Brien show. It was interesting. I had a moment with Conan in between uh, breaks of recording his show. He came out, and evidently, it was something he used to do uh, at that time. I don't know if he still does it. But I, I was a what they call the uh, hallway page. I was sitting in the hallway between the set and like the the dressing rooms. I don't know why. I had no purpose. I was just sitting there. That was just the assignment. And but Conan would come in between breaks, and if he had a bad segment, maybe he would come out and kind of talk to himself, and and then you know, and he would be looking at me, but I wasn't really allowed to talk to him. <laughs> but, but, but anyway Like how
1: do I disappear right now
0: <laughs> <laughs> Exactly And he's huge He's this huge guy So like you know Physically I mean <laughs> Yeah he's really tall
1: And he's he's kind of a ginger right
0: Oh, oh yeah Oh yeah
1: Very much Ooh. good Good my ginger brother from another mother Very, much. Very cool <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yeah so all this leads up You know me doing those different jobs The summer after college Then the NBC page And then I end up working at MSNBC For about five years and I was a TV producer there. So this was my, I was a news person. I was a journalist. So natural progression from TV news often is public relations. So in order to get my a real life, because you have no life in TV news, I tell students trying to get into TV now, it's like, you know, you just have to give in to everything.
1: Well, more so now, because it's like 24 hours. It's even more than 24 hours. There's just It never stops, right?
0: Absolutely. I mean, and you know, I was at the beginning, MSNBC launched the same summer I started, I would start a month before I started. So we were, it was very new and we worked crazy hours. We, you know, I would get phone calls. Uh, So-and-so died. I was like, okay, like you need you to come in. I was like, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a family member. What, you know, I have to get out of my bed, but right. that was expected.
1: Well, you got to put the story together. You got the, you got to get the reel and the memorial thing and cue everything up. and.
0: Absolutely. And the back then it was so competitive with CNN and then Fox news came around, but uh, it was so competitive. So we always had to be first. We always, so we worked crazy hours. And in 2000, I decided to leave television and use my skills as a journalist to do public relations. Okay. So I worked at a Madison Avenue PR firm and that's the beginning of where I am today. I mean, it really, um, from there, it just steamrolled into a whole bunch of other things. I can't tell you how important it is to do different things in life because at some point it's all going to make sense.
1: Yeah. And I love that last point because a lot of people have sort of a ping pong path to where they end up. But you had a force feed ping pong path like you just sounds like you threw yourself into everything possible. And that gave you this wide depth of knowledge within that industry that gave you that power, essentially.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, some people, you know, it's good to be laser focused and I definitely was laser focused. And that's the only reason why I was able to work in TV like I did. If you're not laser focused and you're not a hustler, I mean, you really have to think. I mean, I would be on this because uh, I lived, uh, lived at the time in North Jersey and I would uh, would take the train in or the or, or the bus into New York City to go to work. And if I saw someone that had like a CNN jacket, i would like, excuse me, you work for CNN? Yes, I I, I do a, a cameraman. I was like, "Oh, OK, here's my resume. Would you mind? I mean, I literally was doing that all the time. Wow. I always had a resume on me wherever I went, anybody, I would go up to people. Uh, I would go up to speakers. speaking so you speakers. I would go up to speakers at events and say, I love what you said. I know you work for Dateline. This is a true stories. is how I got my NBC page gig. I walked up to a speaker. I was, I don't know, 21, 20 years old. I don't know. And said, I love what you said. I love Dateline. I, I want to work for NBC. And she said, well, tell me about yourself. I told her all about the eight internships. She was like, okay, give me your resume. She was like, call me, you can come in. She had me come in. She was an associate producer. She had been an NBC page. She liked me. She pushed me to the right people. I had to go through the process. But if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have even probably got the
1: first meeting. So you, you can be in a situation where you have 12 internships and you can have all of this quote unquote, you know, firsthand experience, but it still took you, actually going up and utilizing an opportunity jumped on it and sort of because even further than just getting the exposure, you had to take it one step further. And I think that that's kind of a classic trait of somebody who is in that PR and who is a professional communicator, Mm -hmm. like creating your own opportunities, even within the opportunities that you have.
0: Exactly. Exactly. There was there was no everything I did back then. And there was no one that was coaching me on this. I had it innately in me to do these things. No one was like, Shakira, you know, next time you go to an event, you should walk up to somebody. I knew to walk up to somebody and to just put myself out there. And uh, I can tell you that the students of today don't, most of them don't have this. Right. And it's scary because they're waiting. Like, oh, I I contacted her on LinkedIn. I was like, okay, so have you thought about calling her office? (laughs) Have you looked to see if she knows anybody else? I mean, you know, I was slipping resumes under doors. (laughs) <laughs> and when I would go visit someone at, oh no, seriously, I did it. Paula Zahn, yeah. uh, Paula Zahn was the host of CBS this morning. And I was visiting someone else at CBS who was a referral. And after I had planned it out, I saw that she was married to a guy who went to Boston University. And she was at the alumni magazine. I wrote up a letter. It was all premeditated. That said, I saw you at Boston University Alumni Magazine. I'm a recent graduate. I know your husband went there. Um, I really would love to work for CBS. And I wrote that up with my resume, slipped it under her door when I was in the building at CBS. And she called me two
1: weeks later. (laughs) She
0: called me. Wow. She called me. Yeah. So, I mean, like all of it is about getting out there.
1: Yeah. I bet you're full of great tips and tricks for the modern day page you should i mean maybe there's a book for there for you or maybe just a white paper like i don't know i think that there is a lost art of aggressively getting what you want versus sitting back in the back of the chair and i think you have correctly identified these younger generations maybe i don't know why why do you think it is that they don't have some of that same approach or what why is it not intuitive to them these days Do you have any guesses or or insights about how things have changed and why
0: technology. There we go. It's because they're become reliant on it. They've relied on the fact that they can reach someone so quickly on a text or they could send an email or just, you know, follow them or, or try to link in with them or whatever, uh, Snapchat, whatever. And they're used to that. And it's sort of just become easy. But when it comes to employment and getting what you want, whether that's, you're trying to get a job, whether you're trying to get a speaking engagement, you have to go a bit further. I mean, To transition into speaking this week, I had two talks with, I've had two meetings with people for 2018. Okay. I said, I emailed them and said, what are you doing? I I spoke for you this year. I have some ideas for things that I can bring back to your group. Again, let's talk. And I had meetings, you know, but I asked for those meetings. They didn't say, Shakira, you were such a great speaker this year. You know, let's talk about how we can do something else with you next year. Because that's not what people normally do. Um, I give the idea.
1: It's a very proactive approach. I love the fact you give the idea, right? Everybody is maybe sitting back on their haunches waiting, but you you come up with the idea that you want and then you pretty much use your Jedi mind tricks and determination and strategic communication to get in front of them and just straight up say, like, here's what I think would work, right? Yeah,
0: (laughs) yeah. And I give them a list. I always have a little, two or three topics that I want to talk about. First, I find out exactly what their plans are for the year. You know, what are you... You know what are your goals? Who are you trying to reach? You know, and then I find that out, and then say, okay, well, I've got a couple of talks that might help your goals. I know you're trying to reach these people. You're trying to do more of X. You know, maybe you can have me come in and talk about that. And the thing is, I mean, I always make sure I establish a good rapport so that I can actually invite them into a conversation with me to talk about future planning. But I definitely don't wait. I have a few more of those to do. But uh, I think I'm starting a little bit earlier than I did last year. But It's good because people are ready, you know, they're trying to chop up their budgets right now. And they're looking and seeing like, who, you know, who are we going to pay for this? Who are we going to invite, but not pay? That's a, that's a big thing.
1: (laughs) You know what it makes me think of right now? I like, I, I'm just visualizing you as the little person on someone's shoulder and then you're actually talking with that person. So you're talking with them, but then you are on the person's little shoulder, like chirping into their ear, whispering into their ear, the concerns and the goals and making them think about what you know they're concerned with, but you just sort of plant the seed and then harvest the food. (laughs) Right. It's,
0: It's really, that's all it is. And, uh, you know, it's helpful for me also to get into that conversation about what their goals are. So even if in that conversation, I don't have a topic that will address what they're trying to do for the year, at least I'll have information about it so I can quickly draw something up and give it back to them. And I, the one call I had, we had a great conversation we started it and she's like, you know, I have to go, but let's get something else on the calendar. So I have yet another meeting with this person. Right. And I will have, hopefully I'll get a couple of different speaking gigs out of that one.
1: Very cool. But
0: you know, all of this is in the training of starts way back from college and hustling to get internships, then to get jobs in television. It all set me up for where I am today.
1: Well, I'm excited to get into what your tips would be if you had a platform like this podcast for a world of speakers of people who want to, uh, get their foot in the door, <laughs> slip their speaking uh, one sheeter under the door of the executives <laughs> of the place that they want to speak at. So, um, share some of this wisdom and shortcut your trials and tribulations to help people get a head start. What What are some of the top things you can suggest for people to improve? You know their presentations, their approaches, what they're doing. What do you think?
0: So, one of the things that I always do when I'm actually preparing a presentation is I come up with some boilerplate anecdotal stories okay. that relate to the content
1: I'm delivering. For somebody who's thinking about the fact that you're boiling something on a boiling plate, just to, to clear that out of their mind, what is this boilerplate <laughs> for those who maybe don't know?
0: <laughs> I, okay, another term for that would be a go-to story. You know, something that is your standard information that you always give in your talk. I uh, have a talk that I do. I do a lot of speaking on branding and uh, when I talk about branding and perception, I have a go-to of using Barbara Corcoran, uh shark tank, real estate mogul. I love some of her stories that I've heard by watching videos of her speaking. And I've used some of her stories to draw home a point that I want the audience to go home with. And so I have that story down pat. It's like, it's just like, She's telling it, but I'm telling it, and I, I don't take it for myself. I use her I tell her name and tell her story. Right, right. And, and I have that story, and it's always there. And you know, there's it's not like I have all this information on a slide. I might show her photo and quote from her, but then I tell her story. But that's always after I've provided some content in the presentation that relates to that story, so that they can connect the dots. But I always have more than one story. I always think about you know what real world example. Do I have that I can interject in after I've gone over the subject matter so that they can have an understand because storytelling is really, really important when you're in front of a group and you're there and you're presenting, you have to be careful not to be so focused on the bullets, but also to weave in some stories to illustrate your point even further.
1: Okay, and I like the fact that you are leveraging people who are well known, and you're tapping into these stories that creates this credibility and the halo effect. It's not necessarily your story, but you have people stories in your pocket.
0: Exactly, and I do have some of my own stories. You know, I, I told you a bunch of them in this, in this interview, but but I, you know, I have my own stories, and I also have client related stories. And then let me just go into that a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah, okay. If
0: you're someone who is looking to get clients through speaking, right? You want to get clients through speaking. Without having to tell people, you know, what I do is you can just give examples of how you've helped someone like them. And I have several of those stories, and it's better to have those really buttoned up before you have the talk, right? Before you do your talk. It's good to start with a case study. So maybe you've done a case study on one of the clients that you've worked with, and you can kind of uh, boil that down to a couple of minutes of talking about how you helped them and what their problems were. And how you remedied them, and how you got them to a point where now they're happy, or they're making money, or whatever it is you know, the end result was supposed to be. But I always use, even in a, when I'm counseling a business owner, I always use examples of how I've helped someone like them. And that way, I'm not selling; I'm just telling. I'm telling a story, and then the, and through that example, they see what I could do for them. And that's a great way to have, a, like I said, an anecdotal story. That's already pre-planned and thought about that you can interject at any time. And also to be prepared for questions, because sometimes you get questions, you ask people to ask questions, and they say something, and you, you should have a couple of go-to stories that might fit in there. But always be thinking of storytelling as part of
1: your talks. So that concept of using a case study, I think, is is interesting to to talk about just for a second, because it's like a triple or quadruple or I don't know, how do you say five tuple, (laughs) king tuple? (laughs) I don't know. know. It's like this power threat because it's founded in a story. It's not your story, but it's a story about someone that you're helping. And it's not just anyone. It's someone who is a mirror or a lookalike to the audience that you're talking about. So then you're able to tell instead of sell a story that is your story and a client's story. It also gives you a battle card for answering a question to refer back to. And you can deliver the nuggets of what you actually do within there. So that's like a, it's a serious arsenal within just a case study at the surface level. Maybe people don't think the value that you have as a speaker leveraging that. I like that.
0: Yeah. And, you know, people take what they've done for granted, right? But as a speaker, as a professional, as a consultant, whatever it is that you do, you have to sit back and look at your accomplishments. And if you look at your accomplishments, you're going to see that there are some things in there that... It's going to provide valuable information. And those are the stories. Uh, but you, you have to look at everything you've done, your body of work, and see within that body of work, what in here can some other person learn something from? And, you know, in what way can I tell it that it's compelling and that the everyone will get it and they'll just love me for it or they'll want to talk to me or they'll buy what I'm selling or whatever it is you're trying to do.
1: Hmm. Is, do you think that there's an ideal ratio from just a general standpoint of say your typical content or as you referred to these bullet points of sort of nuggets uh, in comparison with storytelling? And I know that we can combine the two, but when you approach a presentation, do you have like a 50-50? Is it leaning one side or the other? Just curious.
0: So what I do is I look at the subject matter and if I feel like the subject matter stands on its own without me having to tell a story, I leave it be. So it really is it dependent on what, the, what each slide, what each component is going to consist of. So when I'm coming up with the stories, if I'm writing, not, not just a story, if I'm coming up with content for a slide to make a few points and help people learn something, and I say, you know what, I actually have a real life example. I'm going to tell the story that when that time when I blah, blah, blah. Because that's how I look at it. I create the content, and then I say, what stories can I tell to help drive this message home? And it, it really goes to the point that some things can stand on their own. You don't need to tell a story every time. But sometimes, there's, especially if you have a good story, you want to make sure that you, know, you save that for when it's most appropriate. I don't look at it as a 80-20 or 50-50. I don't do any of that. I personally look at the subject matter decide if I have a story that's worth telling and that they will find interesting and be impressed by because, hello, that's also what it's about. But then I tell it. And if I don't, I, you know, and if, and sometimes, like I said, I borrow famous people's stories because sometimes people don't know other people's stories in depth. You know, They might know it on the surface, but, but they may not know those anecdotal pieces. And I try to pull those out and use those.
1: Hmm. So I, I oftentimes throw out on Twitter questions for listeners to ask. And you know you're talking about the storytelling and it's almost the visual that you're creating for the person in their mind but you also referred to sort of the slide so one question i've gotten before is the specific process that people go through to you know research and create your visuals so you're talking about the slide is there any secret method that you go about to create the the presentation visual that is in conjunction with your content and stories
0: you know the way we visualize through on a slide is seems like it's changing every six months or so. Okay, and I try to look at seriously. It just I look at other people's slides and it'll be like just a photo, and they just talk over the photo. Right, and I was like, do I want to just talk over a photo? I guess I could, but you know, maybe it's a a photo and a you know one quote or something like that. And that process for me, again, is very dependent on the subject matter and what's going to be relevant to the message that I'm overall trying to deliver. But I would say that it's important to have an understanding of attention spans, right? Right. And not to just, you know, spew out everything you know on a slide. I also want people now to spend more time listening to me and not worrying about what's on the slide. So I just did a presentation on social media and cyber fraud and how social media can open you up to some weaknesses that could bilk your customers or you. Uh, someone could pretend like they are you, create a what I call a zombie website with your logo on it and start talking to your customers and get credit card numbers and stuff like that. Really interesting topic.
1: Right. Wow.
0: And you know, I decided for that I was going to keep it really sleek. I was just going to have maybe like a photo and then just a few words per bullet. And then most of it would come from me. Most of it is them listening to me speak. And this is probably the first presentation that I've done with so few words on a slide. And I liked it. I probably will do it again because I've been trying to play around with it. But certain things I want to make sure that the people have, I go really, really in the weeds sometimes on branding topics. And it's helpful for people to see more information on the slide. But I'm gonna figure out other ways to do it now, because I did like having the the fewer words on the slide and really having them focus in on what I was saying to them. I was just I told a lot of stories in that in that particular uh, presentation on cyber fraud and social media.
1: yeah, and I, I like the fact that you're looking to see what other people are doing. And the fact is that, yes, the kind of the the way people are using slides and visuals changes, so the best practice would be to be paying attention to other people's slides and then taking things and trying them out, it seems like. And that minimalistic approach I've definitely seen uh, more popular these days.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, the way we do things is not the end all. It's good to see what's hot, what's trending and to adopt the things that will work for you. I I wouldn't say you do exactly what somebody else is doing. You don't have to do that and shouldn't, but it's good to kind of find out. Okay. So let me, what I do is I sometimes I'll sign up for these technology providers—they, you know, whether it's something like social media management tools, they're always having free webinars to learn how. I do. I watch those a lot just to see how they're putting together their slides. Right. And I try to go to. Um, I get invitations to sit through accounting-related webinars or law, and just to see what everybody's doing to see their. And and that's and what I do is I'll go. Ooh, I like what that. I love how he or she did that slide and how they talked over it. And, you know, then that's something that I can try to emulate later on.
1: So I just realized something you've turned in your passion for being aggressive with internships to your passion with being aggressive for being and uh, sitting in on (laughs) webinars, right? Like you, (laughs) you talk about sort of the value of all these different perspectives from this internship. Like that's a trait that you still have and you're actively seeking out like you're kind of, I mean, I guess if you're at a webinar of someone else, you're kind of like interning, you're learning from them. It's a very low threshold of responsibility. You can bail out if you want to. You don't have to talk to the person, right? Just like Conan in the hallway, you can sit there and be a fly on the wall, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> but you're, uh, but you're there, you're a page, you're in the hallway and you're, you're able to pay attention to that. Okay. So what I'm getting from you is that stories are still very important part of the process. But there's a a subcategory of stories which you particularly leverage, which are case studies to not only incorporate your story with it, but your customer story that relates to the audience that gives you an ability to back up your answers with research. It shows examples of what you do for clients. So you're not selling, but you're telling. And then kind of this idea of keeping an eye on best practices for visuals. It really depending on the audience and the topic. So there's not one specific method. What uh, From the the presentation and speaking, what is maybe another pillar of advice that you give to people? And then we'll transition into how you take this and then try to get more gigs and continue on with monetizing your message. What's another big top level piece of advice that you'd give to someone who was super stoked to be an intern on your webinar? (laughs) Well, (laughs)
0: one of the things that I personally do is I try to... Learn as much as possible about other industries, listen to other speakers, be willing to deliver a talk for the first time ever, but combine it with something that I know. and with something. By the way, I didn't really know that much about cyber fraud and social media. I definitely know a lot about social media and communicating through that, but I, I actually had to do research on that and to connect the dots because it wasn't that obvious to me. And when I, once I connected the dots, I was like, wow, there really are a lot of weaknesses in social that could lead to some sort of fraudulent activity. But I had to do the research on that. I had to read white papers and watch a few videos and create my talk around some of the things that I learned in there. Hmm. And it's definitely on my radar now. And, you know, I accepted the talk knowing I would have to do that because I wasn't anything that I had in my back pocket. I really had to learn it. Right. So um, you really have to be willing to learn subject matter that you may not be familiar with and and as long as it's, I would say, connected to something that you know, like social media for me, I think that's fine I mean, I wouldn't go and try to do a a cardiology talk, I mean that's completely out of my bailiwick, but (laughs) uh, but,
1: you Well, you might be able to talk about how medical doctors or cardiologists can leverage social media to get more exposure, more clients and mitigate their risk when it comes to something. But I see what you're saying. I like this.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, but no, I would not be able to talk about advances in cardiology with regard to (laughs) curing diseases or whatever. There's no way I would do that. Right. That's completely off base. But yeah, right. I could speak to cardiologists on personal branding or something like that. Yeah. You know, if they wanted to be thought leaders, you know, in their field. So that's no problem. But on their subject, no, I could not do that. But I have a willingness to adapt to what the client is looking for in the talk. So that's a characteristic that I think every speaker needs to have is to not just work on the stuff that you know, but to listen to what the client is looking for. Why are they, you know, what, what is the theme of the event? Is there something that you need to tie into your normal talk? And then how do you do that? And do the research to find that. And always be looking for ways to expand your knowledge. And even if you don't need it right then, the crazy thing about the cyber fraud social media talk is that I was cleaning out my downloads folder on my Mac. Okay. And I found three white papers I had downloaded last year on cyber (laughs) fraud and social media. Right. I did not remember
1: downloading those files.
0: I had no plans to do that talk.
1: I'm guilty. I'll, I'll do that too. I'll be like, oh, white paper, cool, download it. And then just like, (laughs) <laughs> not have it, but but you had them. So it was like sort of meant to be. It's in the back of your mind there.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because I'm always looking to learn other things that could support what I already know. So, and evidently I, I had that last year.
1: What I like about this is there's this kind of ongoing debate or discussion about whether or not as a speaker, you should be super hyper-focused on one topic and just own that and sort of find the riches in the niches. And then there's this other, which is maybe be more of a multi-purpose speaker. And what I think you've tapped into is a way to combine those in a whole third category, which is being able to maneuver your core strengths and adapt them to speak to these different groups. And I think that that really... I don't know. I mean, has that opened up opportunity for you, but also kept you in a focus so that you're still known and your brand is not affected? Like, wow, she's all over the place.
0: No, I try. You got to keep it together. I keep it with within the branding, uh, PR, communications, small business sort of development. I keep it all within there. I try to speak to small businesses or business owners in general. When it comes to branding, I could talk to anybody about developing a personal brand. It is not uh, something that I'm afraid to do to any group of people, but you know, if I need to be a little bit more nimble with the subject matter to make it fit, I do it. Yeah. I do it. And some people are not, you're right. Some people are like, well, I only, this is what I say. Right. That's that. No, no, that's not me. And I think you're, you're going to get booked more if you can work with the, uh, the conference organizer, whomever's pulling, pulling together the list of speakers. If you can listen to what they're really trying to do for the event and you can kind of match that up. It's a win-win.
1: Very cool. Well, Speaking of booking, there's a great transition into your tips. Like I have a feeling you have the golden goose when it comes to tips of getting your speaker foot into these doors. So how can you help people get more gigs, get money for their message? What works for you? And what do you think is translatable to other people?
0: So speaking has been something I've been really focused on for the last two and a half years. Slowly but surely, putting more of my own energy into it. And as I'm putting more energy into it, guess what? I'm getting more opportunities. I create, I say, I ask the universe for something that gives it to me. Hmm. You know, I think about having more speaking engagements. Like, you know, I got to get more. And I don't say, you know, oh, I wish someone would call me. I say, you know, what am I going to do to get more speaking
1: engagements? Right. I see you very much as an outbound. Like you see your target and then you go get it, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I self-talk. (laughs) And I say, you know what, (laughs) what are you going to do? What can you do to get more speaking? Who can you call to see if they need someone on this topic? Are they planning something? So when I do that, that yields results always because I'm taking action. But one of the things that I would say is important for anybody who's looking to get more bookings and to get their foot in the door is they have to start working on getting the content that's going to help uplift them and that includes photography. I just hired, uh, I did two speaking engagements and I hired photographers to shoot some video, which I still have to put on my website because it requires me to edit it And, and to do some, uh, take some photos of me speaking, which is what everybody eventually needs.
1: Yeah. It's hard to get a good picture of you speaking on stage, especially because like 90% 90% of the shots are like your mouth in an awkward position, like looking in various forms, kind of like a Halloween costume or something. But the fact is you're saying hire somebody to come to your event to get those pictures so that you don't have to depend on friends or weird cell phone images to build up this repertoire of, and what would you call it? Is it for your portfolio or just for your record, your repetition?
0: And for your brand, for your speaking brand, you're going to need, uh, you know, a website, a speaking website. Mine is ShakiraBrown.com, shameless plug. Um, <laughs> but you're going to have to have a speaking website. So you need to have s- populated with some photos. So, you know, I it's good to know photographers, like a bunch of them, because you have photographers who are so high-end, it's going to be a fortune for you to hire them. They'll never spend three hours with you at an event. Then you have the ones who are like sort of like chill. You can offer them a price. They'll take it. They'll give you everything they shoot. Those are the ones you really want, the ones who were – Really chill about it. It was like, you know what? Just pay me. You know, yeah, that's great. I'll take your price and I'll give you everything I shoot. The ones who are a little fancier are going to charge you a high price and then limit what you get from them. Right. But in the beginning, you need to have like a whole body of work. You need to like see everything. And what I do for uh, I did for the first event that I had I hired a hired photographer for, I told the photographer I wanted to do some uh, some of uh, some candid shots, some headshots. And some, we actually did some staging. I staged speaking so I can get my face in the right way that I wanted it. Right. So, you know, I pretended like I was actually talking and had the lights on. and I So I got the look that I wanted. And then also, you know, she was like, why don't you bring a different jacket and you can change your clothes and you, we can do some other shots. And we totally did that. And it was a great day. Nice. And I didn't spend a fortune. It was like two twenty-five. It's It was cheap. Right. So that's very, very important as it relates to getting your foot in the door is to kind of look the part.
1: Yeah. And that comes down to the brand. Right. And I mean, how important is a focus on your personal brand when you're a speaker? Very important. <laughs> you're like, how am I going to say this nicely, Ryan? that sounds like a dumb question. Like, hello, <laughs> your silence spoke volumes. Yeah. Your silence spoke volumes. Though.
0: It's extremely important because, <laughs> you know, people need to believe that you're the expert that your bio says that you are. So you got to live that and it's got to start off, but it starts off with what they read. You know, one of the things that I try to do when I'm doing a speaking engagement is prepare an introduction that kind of sets it up right up to the point where even I type in, please join me in giving a hand for Shakira Brown. I type that up mm. and I hand it off to the person who's going to be reading it. So then my intro is always one that sets me up in such a way that people are juiced and ready and excited to listen to me. And that's, that's branding.
1: Yeah. You're controlling that brand message as opposed to showing up and all of a sudden they read it and you realize it's an old bio or it's something that's not relevant for what you're talking about. That's a good one. Just preparing the opening remarks for the event.
0: Right. And, you know, one of the things that I draw upon is my public relations background. I mean, as a publicist, I have written up introductions for clients. So I just now I do it for myself. I write it up, I hand it off. and, And what happens is other speakers are like, what we didn't get that. It's like, cause you didn't hand it in. <laughs> you didn't get that cause you didn't have one cause you didn't type it up. Right. You don't have a publicist, <laughs> you know, whatever, you know, <laughs> but I would, and then I, you know, I used to be so detailed with clients. I don't have any clients right now that I do a lot of speaking work with anymore. I'm working. My client is me right now for speaking, which is necessary. Cause it, as you know, speaking is, you know, it takes time. It takes time to pitch yourself, to fill out forms Oh, the forms. Right, but, but uh, I would type up introductions if you have a difficult name in that introduction, please phonetically spell your name so that when they read it, it's correct.
1: Ooh, that's a good one too.
0: yeah, that's old school. That's a old school news tip because in news, when you have the anchors reading things, the anchors don't know how to say things, and actually they botch things all the time, right. But we would write in the script, you know the phonetic spelling so that they can be able to pronounce it correctly. So they don't look like jerks when they pronounce somebody a a dignitary's name incorrectly. Right. So I do that in my introductions as well. For me, it's okay. I've had clients have had really tricky names and I've had to do that. But there's a lot of speakers with tricky last names, tricky first names, spell it out so that they can, you know, there's no question on how to say it.
1: I like that. Now, I think that the idea which you said, like, I am my own speaking client, like that is rad. And I think everybody needs to have that PR mentality for themselves, right? Nobody's going to toot your own horn better than you can, but then there's a fine line, right? Because you want to separate yourself and not always be tooting your own horn, but you're creating resources for other people to play the trumpet or whatever they are with the notes and the music that you want them to play.
0: Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right, Ryan.
1: Very cool. Well, hey, this has been a lot of fun. I am more inspired than ever to get out there and sort of dabble into, you know, these random other pockets of information to pull from. I think that going back and finding case studies, I have not really incorporated case studies into talks. I'm more of a storyteller, but telling stories through case studies sounds like a very strong addition to the repertoire and the phonetic name spelling. I think that's a little golden nugget there too. All kinds of stuff. Any sort of final truth or value bomb that you have that is just burning to get out for everybody that is on the top of your mind from the PR or communication standpoint to help get more gigs?
0: Well, let's talk about a little bit about getting more paid gigs. Yeah, exactly. That's something that I've been laser focused on. Everybody starts off doing as many speaking engagements as you can, paid or unpaid. But you've got to come to the point where you say, I am no longer going to speak for free. And some people are afraid to turn things down. I'm not. You have to get to that mental point, that mindset of I'm only going to talk when I'm getting paid. But I have a secondary rule to this, that this is a Shakira Brown original. Okay.
1: Okay. Let's hear it.
0: This is what I say. There's got to be money in my pocket or in the room.
1: Ooh, I like that. Okay.
0: So what I mean by that is if I'm getting paid to speak, great. Great. If they want me to speak for free, then it needs to be in front of a group of people who would maybe at some point can hire me. I can create a list so that I can drip market to them and maybe get them to hire me in the future. But you know, I'm not gonna speak to a room of students. For instance, I had an offer from someone who is a college, adjunct college professor who knows me very well and was like, I would love for you to speak to my students. And my new thing over the last year or so that I say to people, I don't ask, Is does it pay? This is what I say. I say, oh, this is wonderful. I'm really excited. Thank you so much for thinking of me. Who would I send my invoice to? This is my fee.
1: Oh, that's sneaky.
0: I don't even ask questions, right? Because now they're forced to actually deal with the issue, right? And so the response was, oh, I don't have a budget to pay speakers at this time. And I just graciously bowed out and I said, you know what? Thank you. I understand. In the future, you get a budget, you know, let me know. I'd be happy to come speak to the students. But that is the classic money in my pocket or in the room. There was neither on that one. Right. What student is
1: hiring me? Right. They're college students. They're
0: not hiring me to do anything.
1: (laughs) No, no. They're going around waving their resumes looking for internships.
0: Exactly. And you know what? Colleges have money to pay us. So why on earth would I speak at a school for free? Right. They have. Budgets to pay speakers. Now, sometimes certain people will have a budget and they want to pay their friends. They're really good friends that they want to hook them up. That's fine. Right. But I don't, don't ask me to speak for free, cover my time. Maybe you don't want to pay me what I want, but offer me something, you know, say, you know what, we don't have that that amount, but why don't you give me, and we could give you this. And typically I will accept something within reason just so that my time or travel is covered. Yeah. But to actually say to me, I don't have a budget. That's not acceptable. There's got to be money in my pocket or in the
1: room. I like that. That's a good hashtag. It's a little long, but I like it.
0: <laughs> I'm <use> the
1: <laughs> yeah. So here's my Twitter challenge, to everybody. I like to have a Twitter challenge because I like Twitter. And so for anybody out there who's going to take some of these pieces of advice from Shakira, whether it's you need money in your pocket and the room or asking people where to send the invoice, definitely tweet us up and let us know. I'm at Ryan Follen.
0: It's, you know what? It's really that simple. People just need to take the time to look at what they really want to do as it relates to speaking and to go out there and get it. They have to be their own PR person. Yes, you could hire a PR person, but it is much more Cost effective in the beginning, especially that you look at what you're doing as you are your own promoter and that you take it seriously enough that you agree that you're not going to just speak whenever or wherever, that you're going to be a little bit more diligent about finding these opportunities, about creating stories that relate to what you do and what you ultimately want to sell, whether you have a business and you want to be a consultant and get more clients. And the most important thing is that you figure out ways to get the money to get paid because it's out there. Don't let anyone tell you that it's not. Start looking at getting paid. Start turning down unpaid opportunities and what you want will be right in front of you.
1: I ditto. I ditto, ditto, ditto that. And everybody, you need to do the same. Hey, Shakira, this has been so much fun. I'm so glad that we got to hang out and talk and I'll be looking to connect with you later on in life. Maybe we'll share the stage sometime somewhere in the world, but very excited to have you on the show. And I am now my own PR agent. It's official.
0: (laughs) I'm glad I inspired you. And thank you so much for having me. I had a terrific, terrific time.
1: All right. Everybody check out Shakira and what she's doing and maybe listen to some Shakira while you're doing it. This is Ryan. We are signing out with another fun episode here on the World of Speakers podcast. Check out older episodes and look forward to newer ones. We'll see you later. Bye, Shakira. Bye
0: bye.